Let's cultivate our motivation. Again, come back to the fortune we have at having a precious human life, and yet how it doesn't last long, this life, and how it's so easy for most of our time and energy to get hung up on just working for the concerns of this lifetime. And so let's come back to the big picture of what's really important, what it means to be under the control of afflictions and karma, how we want to be free of that, and how all these other sentient beings that we see around us are in the exact same boat. And so rather than hold grudges against them because of the foolish things they do, recognize that they're just like us, wanting happiness and not wanting suffering, and that they're under the control of their own afflictions. And so generate a sense of fortitude and compassion for them so that our own mind isn't disturbed by anger and turbulence. And then generate the aspiration to become a Buddha so that we'll be able to benefit them the best way and free them from the afflictions that we can see bind them and we'll be able to do that because we've freed ourselves from the afflictions that bind us so generate that motivation finished up to 62. Wow. And I really want to encourage people, if you missed the previous years, to go back and listen to the audio recordings. And we had the audio for the first three years, and then last year and this year, the videos. So, verse 63. By obtaining you for just one moment, even those who must remain in hell for many eons exhaust their karma, and they take rebirth as one of the gods of the 33. So here we're talking again about the benefits of great compassion. So this is referring to an event in the previous life of the Buddha. I'm sorry, this is the next one that refers to that. But this is referring to, well, actually it is. It's referring to that story that we talked about yesterday, you know, when he was pulling the, um, the cart yeah, in the hell realms. So this is how powerful compassion is for purifying negative karma, as that in, instead of having to remain in the hell realms for eons, even a moment of compassion can liberate one from that and help one to take rebirth in the gods of the 33. This is one of the desire realm gods. I think it's the second level. Okay. Then verse 64, I, I should say, you know, for, for some people taking, realm, taking rebirth in the, in the devil realms, in the God realms, is like really a big thing. They really want that. Yeah. But they, they, de- they recommend for us not to want that. Because if you get born in that kind of realm, you know, you live and it's happy and you have your Beverly Hills existence for a while. And then after that, it all collapses again. The karma is used up and what goes up must come down. So back in a lower realm again. So even though some people really like the idea of having a rebirth in a celestial realm, we're really warned against craving for that. Because uh, if we do, then you know, if we crave for something good in cyclic existence, then we can't generate the determination to be free from cyclic existence. Then, 64. In smothering the masses of the fires of suffering, you are like a great rain, and in burning up the piles of negativities, you are equal to the fire at the end of this time. So here talking about how great, you know, uh, great compassion is in terms of purifying negativities. Okay, so the first part is for soothing suffering. 
So, you know, the image is like this incredible mass of fire of suffering. Not literally suffering and fire, but, you know, dukkha in cyclic existence is being compared to a fire. And so great compassion is like a cooling rain that puts out the fire. Okay, so this is, you know, His Holiness talks so much about that the actual benefit of great compassion comes more for the person who has it than for the person towards whom it's directed. Okay? So, you know, we would think, oh, great compassion has so much benefit for the people for whom we have great compassion. But His Holiness says, you know, when you have compassion for somebody and you do something to benefit them, you never know how they're going to take it. Yeah, and you never know whether they're going to receive benefit, whether they're going to criticize, whether they're going to be happy, whether they'll complain. You don't really know the outcome of your compassionate action. So he's saying the actual benefit of having compassion comes for the person who has the compassion not for the person who's the object. Because when we have compassion, then our own mind is free of the torment of, of uh, anger and is free of resentment and isn't tied up in knots. Okay? So here when it's talking about putting out the fire of suffering, you know, it's talking about if we generate compassion, it's going to help us put out our fire of suffering. And then hopefully it'll help other sentient beings but we can never guarantee. And so this is actually one of the big points in having compassion is that we've got to make the attitude of compassion and the action we do motivated by compassion the delight in and of itself. Okay? Because if we're expecting that I act compassionately and therefore this person gets their life together or therefore they forgive me for the horrible things that they've done, I've done, or therefore, you know, they like, something happens that's nice. If we're expecting some kind of reward coming from the other person, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because there's no guarantee that that's going to come. But when the quote-quote reward, in other words, when the delight of great compassion uh, is just the delight we experience in being free of anger, the delight we experience in feeling good about ourselves, you know, and take that as the reward, then, you know, we're not going to be so hooked on, oh, I, I did so much for somebody, but look how they're treating me. You know, the, the verse in the eight verses about somebody we've benefited and um, trust, you know, treats us very badly. Yeah, oh, that situ- that's such an awful situation, isn't it? But you can see, you know, if we've set up the situation in our mind, I'm benefiting you, I trust you, therefore you should not act this way and you should act this way or you should feel this way and you should not feel that way when we have that coming from our side it's a total setup to be hurt isn't it it's a total setup and we're the ones setting it up yeah, why because we can't control what the other person thinks or does out of our hands so in order to avoid being hurt, we have to, you know, step, pedal, backpedal in terms of our expectations and take delight in just feeling good about ourselves because we've done something kind. Not in the sense of being arrogant, like, oh, what a fantastic person I am. But, you know, we should rejoice in our own good deeds. You know, we should rejoice in our own merit and our own virtue. And so, to do that, rejoice, feel good about it, and let that be sufficient. Okay. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Yeah. Because we always have this mind of, you know, kind of like, well, I did this, you should do that. 
course, we never bother to check with the other person that they agree to this deal. <laughs> Do we? We just assume. You know? And, and often we say, well, this is just normal human convention. If somebody's kind to you, you do this. That's true. It might be normal human convention. And that person might be acting obnoxious. But still, what can we do about it? Yeah? So as my mother used to say, don't knock your head against the wall. (laughs) Okay? Because it's not going to do any good. So we have to somehow, you know, just keep releasing these expectations. Is that making some sense? Yeah. But it is hard. I mean, at least they could do is say thank you. Is it so much sweat off their back? Come on, I, you know, I've sacrificed so much for so long with earnest compassion and real love and went out of my way and... Sometimes it was so inconvenient, but I care so much about them that I did this out of the goodness of my suffering heart. I did this for them. Is it so much trouble for them just to say thank you? (laughs) Well, apparently it is. So we can wail all we want, but what's that going to do? I'm sure we all have many tales like this, don't we? Of how kind we've been to something, everything we did, and how that person just threw it right back in our face, inconsiderate, not recognizing our affection, rejecting us, hurting us, never appreciating yeah, we could we could have a good pity party out of this one. Yeah. Maybe could we consider that maybe possibly we did similar things to people in our past and didn't even realize it? Oh, what an incredible <laughs> thought! Really, that we may have done similar things in the past to, to people and not even realized that. Us? <laughs> me, sweet, benevolent me, who's so kind to others, repays others' kindness. Half as much as they gave me, but I repay it. <laughs> no? Yeah, I mean, this is the big thing, that isn't it? That maybe, just maybe, we've been inconsiderate to others and haven't recognized their kindness to us. How many of us have thanked our parents for what they went through being our parents? It took me many years to do that. It never entered my mind. For years it never entered my mind to thank my parents. You know, that was their job. (laughs) They were only doing their job. Okay, But, you know, just to thank so many people who benefit us in our life. Now, do we ever go back and, and thank our um, grade school teachers or our high school teachers? We had one person here who, after being here, he went back to his junior high and apologized to his teachers. <laughs> I thought it was quite beautiful. Yeah. But, you know, as we were growing up, so many sometimes mean things we did to other people. Oh, I was horrible to a couple of teachers and to some friends, really bad. So maybe we've created the karma to receive this result ourselves. Hmm? In which case, again, why whimper and whine? And let's just learn from the experience and, you know, make a strong determination not to treat others that way. And in burning up the piles of negativities, you are equal to the fire at the end of time. So uh, when they talk about the eons of, you know, evolving and declining of the universe, uh, there's various ways in which the universe is destroyed. And one way is by fire. Okay. So sometimes by water, sometimes by air, sometimes by fire. So compassion is compared 
you know, if the universe ends by fire, everything burns up in the conflagration. So, uh, you know, in a similar way, great compassion helps the negativities to burn up like that. And, you know, the thing about great compassion is, even though we shouldn't expect anything from every, anybody else if we do something out of compassion for them, it's amazing sometimes what an effect our kindness can have on somebody. Okay? And I think this is, as, you know, especially applies to young people. Um, sometimes, you know, adolescents are completely lost, uh, or children very lost. And all it takes is one adult to, like, see the potential in that child and befriend that child or that adolescent can completely turn around their life. So, and on the other side, why we shouldn't expect thanks from acting compassionately. We shouldn't underplay the force that uh, even seemingly small kind actions can have uh, on somebody's life. Okay? Whether they thank us or not. And so to, to do this because uh, in a way, this is our sense of integrity, you know, according to our, our own integrity, our own self-respect. I should act, you know, with kindness, with compassion towards others. Okay, verse 65. As soon as he generated the compassion that wished to relieve sentient beings of headache pains, Priyaputra was liberated from the hellish punishment of the revolving wheel. So this refers to um, the time when um, hmm, this story, what they have written here, is a little bit different than I, how I remember it. I remember it as there was somebody who was um, he was being re- very rebellious and wanted to leave home, and so to get out the door, he kicked his mother in the head and then stepped over her. And, uh, and then went about doing his business. And as a result, he of that, um, because, you know, our parents are very strong objects with which we create karma, he was born in a hell realm where there was a, a wheel that was coming down on the top, you know, from the top to cut off your head. I mean, really kind of gruesome. Um, image. And so uh, he had uh, created the cause for that. And, okay, so then when he was uh, Priyaputra, when he was born in the house, when he was experiencing this suffering, he um, generated the wish that uh, nobody be free of such pain. You know, that he be able to... Nobody experience such pain. Yeah, that everybody be free of such pain and nobody experience such pain. And by the thought of that compassion, then his rebirth in hell ended at that point. Okay, so again, the power of compassion to um, burn up the negativity that otherwise would result in a lot of suffering. So these kinds of things are are quite um, unusual to happen because very often as soon as a negative karma starts to ripen, there's so much momentum there that it just keeps going. Yeah. So we can only purify a karma before it's ripened. While it's ripening, it's already bearing its result. It can't be purified. And so like that rebirth in hell was caused by one kind of karma. That karma hadn't been exhausted, and so that hellish rebirth was going to last for a long time. But by generating compassion, it was cut short, so the the rest of that karma was burnt up by the force of the great compassion. But we can see usually, like once something is... You know, so often once something started, it's very, to ripen, it's very difficult to stop it in the middle. Okay. But strong compassion can do that. Okay, then 66. Um, how can one measure the heaps of merit amassed through meditating on supreme compassion? 
the desire to eliminate the 110 forms of suffering that torment all sentient beings equal in number to space. Okay, I don't know what the 110 forms of suffering are, even, even though I've probably undergone all of them, <laughs> but I don't know the list. Um, okay, so how can we measure the heaps of merit amassed through meditating, even meditating on supreme compassion, um, which is the desire to eliminate all these forms of dukkha that torment the sentient beings who are infinite, you know, as just like like space is infinite. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you have infinite compassion for infinite beings who are as infinite as space, then, you know, so great is the the merit that is accumulated, so great are the negativities that are are um, that are purified. So here he's been uh, talking a lot about the benefits of compassion and it was reminding me of um, in Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life where Shantideva talks about the benefits of bodhicitta. So we remember we talked about great compassion being the cause of bodhicitta. It's not the same as bodhicitta, but it's a cause. Okay? And so in in the first chapter here, he talks so much about the benefits of bodhicitta. So I thought I would just read a few verses here and there to give you some kind of idea. Because we'll notice in the teachings that so often um, when presenting a topic, the, uh, they'll talk first about what are the disadvantages of not you know, familiarizing ourselves with this topic and what are the benefits of familiarizing ourselves with it. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like the Buddhist sales pitch, you know. If you don't have great compassion, this, all this negative stuff's going to happen to you, you know. And if you do have great compassion, it's just like this laundry soap, you know. It's going to bring all these benefits. But if you use the wrong laundry soap, you're going to get all these problems. And everybody's going to walk out on you. So it's, it's kind of like that. Yeah. But except, I mean, the the laundry soap one is really exaggerated, yeah. But here, the, seeing the benefits of bodhicitta and the drawbacks of not having it, that's not exaggerated. Okay, but it's very helpful for our mind to understand it because then it gives us more inspiration and um, more joyous effort to develop the awakening mind. Okay, so I thought I'd, I'd read a few of the chapters. Verses to you. Hence virtue, so talking about our, us ordinary beings, hence our virtue is perpetually feeble, the great strength of immor- immorality being extremely intense. And except for the bodhicitta, by what other virtue will it be overcome? Okay. All the Buddhas who have contemplated for many eons have seen it to be beneficial. For by it, the limitless masses of beings will quickly attain the supreme state of bliss. It's beautiful, isn't it, to think like that? Those who wish to destroy the many sorrows of their conditioned existence and those who wish all beings to experience a multitude of joys and those who wish to experience much happiness should never forsake the awakening mind. The moment an awakening mind arises in those fettered and weak in the jail of cyclic existence, they will be named a child of the Sugata and will be revered by both humans and gods of the world. It is like the supreme gold-making elixir, for it transforms the unclean body we have taken into the priceless jewel of a Buddha's body, a Buddha's form body. Therefore, firmly seize this awakening mind. Beautiful verses, aren't they? All other verses are like a plantain tree. A plantain tree is a kind of, uh, a plantain is a kind of um, like banana thing. It's really good if you fry it. But the the stalk, the trunk of a plantain tree is empty. Okay? So all other virtues are like a plantain tree, for after bearing fruit, they simply perish. 
you know, after the plant and tree has its fruit, then the stalk is hollow. There's no essence to it. It collapses. Yet the perennial tree of the awakening mind unceasingly bears fruit and thereby flourishes without end. So any merit we create under the influence of bodhicitta never gets exhausted. And if we dedicate for full enlightenment, that merit never gets exhausted. Like entrusting myself to a brave person when greatly afraid, by entrusting myself to this awakening mind, I shall be swiftly liberated. Even if I have committed extremely unbearable wrongs, why then do the conscientious not devote themselves to this? It's a good question, isn't it? You know, those of us who always want some protection, who feel like, you know, there's danger and we can't protect ourselves and we're just little old, you know, I mean, these muscles aren't going to do much. Somebody attacks me. Okay. So, so you know, what, what is our protector in life? Yeah. Can we get an, ex, an external protector that is going to protect us from all dangers? You know, any external protector also has a sam, samsaric body that can get injured and ill and die. So our real protection in life is our mind, and especially this awakening mind, the bodhicitta. That's what protects us from all harm. And you can see, if you ask, how does it protect us from harm? Well, first of all, when we have bodhicitta, the mind is virtuous, so we aren't creating negative karma, so we're not creating the cause of suffering ourselves. Second of all, when we have the bodhicitta in our mind, this virtuous state of mind, then even if we meet people who might potentially want to harm us, you know, we're we're going to respond totally differently. We're not going to be afraid of them. We're going to see them with compassion. And, and that very often can, in itself can just diffuse the situation. Because if somebody wants to hurt us, if we're afraid, they feed on that fear. Yeah. If we can stay calm and with a mind of compassion, it, it can often diffuse it. And even if it can't, even if somebody does physically harm us, with a mind of bodhicitta, we, we don't harbor any resentment against them. You know? And so then our mind is free of the pain of you know, reliving the situation again and again, asking why me, or saying it isn't fair, or whatever it is. Yeah. So it really helps the forgiveness aspect of it. Okay. Even if the thought to relieve living creatures of merely a headache is a beneficial intention, endowed with infinite goodness, then what need is there to mention the wish to dispel their inconceivable misery, wishing every single one of them to realize boundless good qualities? So this is referring to the story that we just told. If even that thought to relieve living creatures of merely the, the headache or the pain, you know, a head pain, like this event in hell, is a beneficial intention endowed with infinite goodness, enough to make that hellish karma get exhausted and the person take rebirth in the God realm, then what need is there to mention the wish to dispel all their inconceivable dukkha, not just the head pain, but all the inconceivable dukkha, and not just of one sentient being, but of every single sentient being, and not even just realizing them to be free of that dukkha, but wanting them to have boundless good qualities. So this is what bodhicitta is, what it does. Do even fathers and mothers have such a beneficial, a benevolent intention as this? Do the gods and sages, does even Brahma have it? Okay, we usually think of our parents as the beings who have been very kind to us. Do they have bodhicitta? Do they want us to become a Buddha? Do they want us to be free of every suffering and cyclic existence? My parents never even heard of cyclic existence. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Do even all the beings in the God realms, do, do the non-Buddhist sages, you know, do they want us to, to have this benevolent intention of bodhicitta? No, I mean, most, most beings aren't even interested in it. 
Okay. So if these beings have never before even dreamt of such an attitude for their own sake, how would it ever arise for the sake of others? So if all these other people can't even think of having bodhicitta themselves, how could they even wish us to have it? So then you can see just how powerful it is and what an incredible gift the Buddha is giving us by teaching us how to generate bodhicitta. This intention to benefit all beings, which does not arise in others even for their own sake, is an extraordinary jewel of the mind, and its birth is an unprecedented wonder. How can I fathom the depths of the goodness of this jewel of the mind, the panacea that relieves the world of pain and is the source of all its joy. So you can really see how bodhicitta is the source of all joy because a Buddha, before being a Buddha, a Buddha was a bodhisattva. To become a bodhisattva, one has to have bodhicitta. To become a Buddha, you have to have the aspiration to become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. Okay, so the Buddhas, becoming a Buddha is all due to bodhicitta. And every single virtue that we create is due to the Buddha because somehow us knowing how to create virtue is due to receiving some instructions from somebody somewhere along the line. You know, And one way or another, usually those instructions can be traced back you know, to somebody else who told us, somebody else told us, to the Buddha. Okay? And so thus to the bodhicitta. And all the beings who are liberated from cyclic existence, you know, even though they're arhats and they don't have uh, bodhicitta themselves, still the fact that they were able to practice the path to arhatship is due to the bodhicitta of the Buddha because the path was described to them by the Buddha, you know. So if the Buddha didn't have bodhicitta, if the Buddha didn't have great compassion, then them receiving the teachers, teachings which enabled them to become arhats would never have happened. If merely a benevolent intention excels, excels veneration of the Buddhas, then what need to mention striving to make all beings without exception happy? I was thinking about that word happiness, and... Maybe if happiness, because it seems too superficial, I want everybody to be happy, like going to Disneyland. Maybe how about if we said uh, well-being, to work for the well-being? Or how about fulfillment? Should all beings experience fulfillment or internal peace, internal peace and fulfillment, something like that? Although wishing to be rid of misery, they run towards misery itself. Although wishing to have happiness like an enemy, they ignorantly destroy it. Talking about sentient beings. For those who are deprived of happiness and burdened with many sorrows, it satisfies them with all joys, dispels all suffering, and clears away confusion. Where is there a comparable virtue? Where is there even such a friend? Where is their merit similar to this? If whoever repays a kind deed is worthy of some praise, then what need to mention the bodhisattvas who do good without it being asked of them? The world honors as virtuous one who gives a little plain food disrespectfully to a few beings, which satisfies them for only half a day. What need be said then of one who eternally bestows the peerless bliss of the sugatas upon limitless numbers of beings, thereby fulfilling all their hopes. And then the last verse of, of the chapter says, I bow down to the body of those in whom the sacred precious mind is born. I seek refuge in that source of joy which brings happiness even to those who bring harm. Pandita is amazing, isn't he? Quite incredible. I sometimes think, like, what would it have been like to, to meet Shantideva? <laughs> wow. You know? I mean, somebody who, who can write like this, who, who feels like this, and must have been an incredible human being to meet. And you know, they, they used to call him 
the person who does three things, mm-hmm. eat, sleep, and go to the bathroom. Because he was one of those people who practiced in quiet. He wasn't a flamboyant practitioner who strutted around with a retinue of disciples fanning him, you know, and accumulating stuff as he walked around. He was very, very humble. And so he usually just kind of stayed in his room and meditated. And the other monks at the monastery thought he was just, you know, eating, sleeping, and going to the bathroom and had no right to be in the monastery. So they really resented him. This lazy guy, you know. We're working in the forest so hard, cutting down these trees. (laughs) We're working at the computer so hard, you know, sending out emails. This lazy dude's just sitting in bed all day. So they um, wanted to kick him out of the monastery. To do that, they had to somehow show that he didn't deserve to be there, so they had to humiliate him in some way. So they asked him to give a teaching and invited a huge crowd of people to come to the teaching. And they built a very high throne for him to sit on with no steps up to the top of the throne, thinking, you know, well, that'll do it, you know. Um, (laughs) But he actually went up there and put his hand up and lowered the throne, sat on it, and then the throne went back up. Um, and then he proceeded to give the teaching. And this is, this is what he taught when he gave the teaching, was this book. This was his oral teaching. And when he got to chapter 9, which was on emptiness, he lifted up off the throne and went into the sky and disappeared, and all they could hear was his voice giving the teaching. That's what they say. I got a degree in history. <laughs> but it's um, it's always a good lesson, you know. We don't know really who is a real practitioner. Now, it's not always the the people who make a big splash and seem very charismatic. Now, it could be, but like Shanti Deva, so humble. Okay. When other bodhisattvas and Buddhists of the good eon would look upon sentient beings, those who live up to the age of 100, during this evil time of the appearance of the five degenerations, seeing them as difficult to subdue, they would give up discouraged. But at that time, the Brahmins, Samudra Bhadra, with the courage of his great compassion, perfectly made 500 aspiration prayers and accepted the fortunate disciples as supreme. Okay, so, oh, actually it continues. The Tathagata, Ratnagarbha, and so forth, the Buddhas of the Ten Directions and their spiritual children, scattered abundantly the flowers of praise by calling him the precious white lotus. By the proclamation of the excellence of great compassion, that that the proclamation of the excellence of great compassion is the method of extolling the greatness of their biographies proves that you are the first great tutor for the Buddhas of the three times. Okay, so what this is talking about, these, these four verses, so... Apparently they had a big congregation of bodhisattvas at one time. I I think they often have big congregations of bodhisattvas. Um, But these were going to be the bodhisattvas and the Buddha of the fortunate eon. It's said that we're born in a fortunate eon because there's going to be 1,000 wheel-turning Buddhas, in other words, Buddhas who set forth the Dharma at a time when it isn't already present in the world. Okay? And so when all these other bodhisattvas and Buddhists of the fortunate eon would look upon sentient beings, okay, then they would look upon certain sentient beings who would only live up to the age of 100, which is considered uh, a very not very old because the beings at the beginning of the universe had very, very long lives. okay, But because 
uh, the karma of the sentient beings degenerated because their mental states degenerated, then their lifespan also degenerated until the lifespan was a hundred years. And it said that that's to be our our period now. Okay, when the lifespan is a hundred years, supposedly getting shorter. But it's the time of the. It's all our time is also called the the evil time of the appearance of the five degenerations. So in the thought training practice, you might remember at the beginning it talked about the five degenerations. So this is talking about just kind of, you know, whether you believe this stuff about the universe and eons and stuff is is another story. But the point here is, you know, sometimes we look at our world and we say this place is, you know, falling apart. So... At, at that time, when we say that, then we can see when they talk about the five degenerations, it, it, we can see it's happening in our world. So these five degenerations, first of all, the degeneration of time. So that means that there's a lot of war, there's famine, there's um, exhaustion of material resources, there's oil spills, there's you know devastation, there's nuclear dumping. Okay, the second... Degeneration of the sentient beings is the degeneration of sentient beings. So they have bad ethics. We see that in the news all the time. They're intolerant. They behave outrageously. You know, no gun control. People, you know, kids can get guns. You know, (laughs) they try and do gun control and the Supreme Court shoots them down. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, the best court in the land is, you know, doing this kind of thing. Okay, the third one is is view, that nowadays people have many wrong views. They don't believe that their actions have any ethical dimension. They're, um, they have very little interest in restraint from non-virtuous actions and by, for doing virtuous actions. Their minds are just, you know, kind of don't have any view about karma and ethics, let alone about emptiness. The fourth one is um, the degeneration in terms of afflictions, that sentient beings' afflictions are very strong, and we can see that, how, you know, people are so hedonistic now, and just thinking, you know, about material goods, about their own pleasure, not thinking about others, not thinking about future generations, not thinking about other forms of life that we share the planet with. So very strong uh, afflictions. And then the fifth degeneration is in lifespan, that the lifespan decreases due to um, the, the strength of uh, afflictions, you know, and so due to pollution, due to accidents. So on one hand, we could say, oh, our lifespan is, is increasing due to modern science. On the other hand, you know, when you see what it's like just to have the body kept alive without the mind being present, it's not wonderful. But we see there's all sorts of accidents now. There's new diseases. There's pollution. Okay, And so uh, due to all those kinds of things, many people are dying younger too. Okay? So in this time of the five degenerations, when the lifespan is only a hundred, at this conference of bodhisattvas and buddhas of the fortunate eon, yeah, they were trying to decide who is going to manifest, who is going to be the Buddha that's going to teach these beings at the time when the lifespan is a hundred. And all the other bodhisattvas and buddhas said, "I'm busy. <laughs> Sorry." You know, (laughs) that's a nice request, but, you know, I have a lot of prior engagements at the point. I'm really too busy. I'm very sorry. I can't do that. Okay. And the other bodhisattvas and Buddhists said, "Mm, good luck. And uh, and instead, this one Brahmin named, um, what was his name? Uh, Samudra Raja. Okay, with the courage of his great compassion, perfectly made 500 aspiration prayers and accepted these fortunate disciples who were going to live in the, at the time when the lifespan was 100. He accepted those disciples as his supreme disciples. So this Brahma 
was a, a prominent was a previous like life of Shakyamuni Buddha. Okay, so that's why we say that we have a special karmic connection with Shakyamuni Buddha, because all the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas were too busy to take care of us, and he volunteered. Yeah, and the other ones went, oh, thank goodness. You know, he's going to take care of those guys. You know? Because they're really too much. <laughs> oh, time. So that's the war, famine, exhaustion, material resources, and sentient beings who have wrong ethics, are intolerant, okay, behave completely nutty. What comes after that? What, what will come after that? What, what these come after this is that gradually, they say, the lifespan will decrease until it's only ten years old. And at that time, Maitreya Buddha will appear, but nobody will recognize him as Maitreya. But somehow he'll do something so that sentient beings start keeping better ethical conduct. The lifespan will increase again and then at another certain point in the future, Maitreya, who's the fifth Buddha of this fortunate eon, will appear. So that's why sometimes in dedication prayers they say that we pray to be a disciple of Maitreya Buddha. But they also say that of the, of the thousand Buddhas of this fortunate eon, only four of them will teach Tantra, and one of them is Shakyamuni. So that we're incredibly fortunate to have this life that we have now, where the Tantra is being taught. Okay, so the Tathagata, uh, Ratnagarbha, and so forth, all the Buddhas of the Ten Directions and the Bodhisattvas, then when this Brahmin made that pledge and accepted those beings, you know, as his disciples, the scattered flowers and called him the precious white lotus. Mm-hmm. And that proclamation of the excellence of great compassion is the method of extolling the greatness of their biographies. So, you know, all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that we read of, you know, why are they so highly regarded? It's because of their great compassion. Okay? And so that proves that you are the first tutor for the Buddhas of the three times. And so, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha has this special connection with us and set an example for all the Buddhas of the three times by um, consenting to teach us. Yeah, we could have had disciples who were a lot better. Pretty amazing, you know, when you think of it. Because we just take the presence of the Buddha for granted. Yeah, we take the presence of the Dharma in this historical period for granted. But we could have been born at a time, we probably were in the past, born in a historical time, where there's no teachings, where we were born, there's no teaching because no Buddha happened to appear and teach, then what do we do? How do we learn? Because yeah. we, we take it so much for granted. But, but just think, you know, if there were absolutely no Buddhism, because we think, okay, well, if there's no teacher, I'd go to the library. But no way. You know, there's no Buddhism. Yeah. So what are you going to do if you're born in a historical time where there's no teachings whatsoever and you have this incredible strong spiritual yearning and you go here and you go there looking for a path that makes sense to you and you can't find anything. Yeah. And so how fortunate we are to have met the teachings now and be able to practice them. Just thinking that I, I often think about that when I read of the lives of the disciples of the Buddha, like mm-hmm. Mahasattva, mm-hmm. who was a great practitioner in his own right prior to meeting the Buddha. Mm-hmm. But had the Buddha not become a Buddha at that time and manifested, then he wouldn't have had those teachings, even though he had you know, great fortitude and, and enthusiasm for practicing ascetics. Ascetics. Spirituality, but not, he didn't have the Dharma. Right. Right. Yeah. And at the Buddhist time, there were so many like that. You know, there were, you know, Buddha converted thousands of, of other of the ascetics and wanderers of that time who really had a lot of spiritual aspirations, but, you know, nowhere to go with it because there weren't the teachings.
I also think, from my own mind, that considering how large and vast a time a great eon is, the fact that we are living 2,600 years only after the time of his life, mm -hmm. and that we have the purity of the teachings, is that I, I start sometimes to get this sense of our responsibility as sentient beings with this bodhicitta motivation to make sure that we hold it as purely as we can and to mm -hmm. make prayers that we continue in future lives to keep the purity of the Dharma because it's degenerating so soon after he's been in this world and it's still got another 99 hundredths of a eon to go. What <laughs> shape will it be in if yeah. we don't hold the purity of it? Yeah. Yeah. I really feel that sometimes the sense of personal responsibility that His Holiness talks about. So. Yeah, and we are personally responsible for the existence of the teachings. Yeah, I mean, so often we feel well, somebody else can be responsible for that, but well, why? You know, it's not like it depends just on somebody else, and it doesn't depend just on us. But we certainly have to bear our share of it. Yeah. And at least not make the teachings degenerate. <coughs> at least not that. But do whatever we can according to our own talents and abilities, you know, to enable the teachings to exist, to enable the Sangha, to enable, you know, the 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 places where Buddhism can be found to exist. Yeah. And to see that we have the possibility of, of meeting the Dharma now because of what so many beings in the past did, you know. And to really think of, you know, all these lineages of practitioners behind us, you know, and the list of benefactors who enabled those practitioners to practice, you know. And it was due to the kindness of all these people who helped in one way or another. I mean, millions of people have been touched by the Dharma in the time since the Buddha lived and have contributed in one way or another to the existence of the Dharma. And so, to you know, we're just kind of riding on the wave of good energy that, that they built up over the centuries. And so now it's our job to contribute to this and bring it into the future generations. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems that, you know, I don't know, as the years continue on with Buddhism in the West, that it just seems that uh, the Dharma centers that I've seen, in, in, it seems like there's Dharma light happening mm -hmm. quite a bit more. I mean, it's like getting more and more watered down and secular, except for a few very precious places mm -hmm. <laughs> here. So, you know, what about that? Like, yeah. It's like, you know, we're given this precious gift, mm -hmm. and then it's not even... <laughs> it's not easy to hold it. Yeah. So it just seems that that's also something to be careful about. Mm hmm Yep. Um, of the watering down of the Dharma. Answer or solution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it comes back, I think, to to our commitment to practice. You know, and of course, to practice, we have to study. But, you know, to, to at least from our side, to keep the teachings as they were taught and not to water them down. And, you know, how do teachings get watered down? Is it from the teacher's side, from the student's side? It's hard to say, you know, because if the students don't have interest in certain teachings, if they aren't willing to put up forth effort, if, you know they're looking for some kind of worldly benefit, then bodhisattvas are going to teach to that level of mind, aren't they? Yeah. And, and, and that'll happen. You know, on the other hand, you could have it, so that's coming more from the student's side. On the other hand, you could have it coming from the teacher's side because, you know, sometimes if, if you teach something that's like simple and quick, then many more people come. Yeah, but it, you don't get the full teachings in that way. So that's why it's important to make strong prayers and and not just leave it at the level of prayers, but do something. Yeah. And I was wondering in that situation if the bodhisattvas might not be making a very calculated decision of is it better to have hundreds of thousands of people listening to Dharma light 
or a few thousand getting the truth of the Dharma in, mm -hmm. I don't know what conclusion they would make. Yeah. Okay, so then, it, you know, the question comes, is it better to have many people with Dharma light or fewer people who are really getting the, the full teachings? And, uh, you know, I think that's why there's so many different kinds of Dharma centers and temples and monasteries and teachers because you have so many people with different inclinations and different interests who want different things. And so they're going to be attracted to different teachers and different ways of practicing. Okay? And that's good because then at least people get what benefits them. They get their own needs met. Yeah? Because if we try to make everybody practice the same way, then some people would probably leave and not do anything at all. So it's better they do what they're able to do and get some good imprints on their mind. Mm -hmm. Also, what we call Dharma light is probably something relative. Yes. You know, when you really get into the teachings and the classical texts, it's like, what are they saying? You know? <laughs> okay. And then I'm thinking, I still haven't decided what's going to happen tomorrow morning yet. <laughs> I'll probably decide when it happened but I'm thinking to to maybe continue with the teachings in the morning and then do the um, aspiring bodhicitta that everybody can do without any kind of commitment or whatever His Holiness always gives the inspire, uh, aspiring bodhicitta and to, do, to give that with everybody and then take the group for refuge into the into the library, and then when they're done, the group who wants to take bodhisattva vows go in there. Yeah, but it's for two different things. One is refuge, and one is bodhisattva vows. So I I don't know. Yeah. I was wondering if you would just comment a tiny bit on the Bodhisattva vows. I mean, I've read them in the red book, yeah, those ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but maybe just, just a, little, a little comment on what it means to take the Bodhisattva vows, really. Yeah. It means, the, the meaning of taking the Bodhisattva vows, it means that you're really dedicating uh, your life to Bodhicitta, that you really see it as something incredibly important in your life. There's the aspiring Bodhicitta that you can take first with those, there's the aspiring bodhicitta precepts, so you can take that first and keep those for a while, and then later take the actual bodhisattva vow where you have all the different precepts. The 18. Well, the, the, the 18, those are 18 root vows. Right. Okay. But the, so you're just talking about the aspiring ones. Okay, the, the aspiring ones um, are on page 65, and... Yeah, page 65 and the top of page 66. And I'll do those together? Yeah. And, and actually the ceremony I'm going to do, you don't even have to take those. You can just generate bodhicitta. But if you want to take the eight precepts of the aspiring bodhicitta at that time, you can do that. But then the bodhisattva vows is different. That's where you're really committing yourself to follow the bodhisattva way. Yeah, and that's what I do over there. And people should definitely have refuge in some of the uh, five precepts before they take the bodhisattva vow. But for just the generating, the aspiring bodhicitta, even without any precepts, you know, just doing it as that one thing, you don't need refuge. That's okay. Yeah? Actually, I don't really know about taking a vow that you're not sure. <laughs> and she wants to know, too. Okay. <laughs> well, if, if, you, if you're not... Sure, you can do it, and if you don't, you, you know, first of all, we only take precepts because we know we can't keep them perfectly, okay? On the other hand, we have to have a certain degree of confidence in our ability to keep them. Otherwise, we're promising to do things that we can't really do. So, if you're hesitant, then, you know, about the bodhisattva, then do the, the aspiring bodhicitta, 
and take it with those eight precepts and keep that for a while and then train in the bodhisattva vows, you know, study them, read them, practice them in your life. And then, you know, after you've done that, when you feel very strongly in your mind, oh, I really want to go to Buddhahood and I really want to dedicate myself to, to this, then take the bodhisattva vow. Okay? And we can bring down any villages. 